Okay, Whitfield used to talk about there's a, there's a difference between hearing preaching live and reading it or hearing it on a tape. He says you miss the thunder and the lightning when you don't, aren't there. I'm kind of liking the atmosphere right now. Do you hear that? Do you hear that thunder and that lightning? Oh, yeah. Slim's <laughs> like, what in the world? Okay, here's the deal. We're looking at a passage that I want to tell you is, is a difficult passage up front. Um, I told you there's a group of us that are picking passages and, and uh, are going through encountering Jesus in the Gospels, and, um, and I happen to not have been in on the planning of this particular passage. Uh, and so when I was on the phone the other day, actually I was texting, what text are we doing this week? And they texted the text, and I saw, I was thinking 17 through 20, and then I noticed they added anger and lust, and I'm like, okay, so we're doing all of this? And all I got was this, yep, we're doing all of it. So uh, on tape, I'm blaming you guys even now for this passage. All right, Radio Lab. Anybody know who Radio Lab is? Okay, there was two people. Fantastic. So we are the cool people here, right? All right, Radio Lab, Lab did a show recently called The Bad Show. The post, the podcast tagline began this way cruelty, violence, badness. This episode of Radiolab wrestles with the dark side of human nature and asks whether it is something we can really understand or fully escape. We begin with a chilling statistic. We're still in the quote. 91% of men, 84% of women have fantasized about killing someone. Now, the person that did these statistics is a, is a professor at the University of Texas in Austin named Dr. David Buss, psychology professor. He's the one that discovered this, and he did so at a dinner party at a friend's house. He was looking for his friend. He went up to his friend's wife and says, hey, where's so-and-so? And she said, oh, he's up in the bedroom. So he goes up into the bedroom, and he finds him in a rage. He's actually fuming. He had punched a mirror. He was fuming at his wife. He comes to discover that in the course of this evening, early part of the evening, they were in a group talking with people, and she made this, this comment about his choice of clothing she disrespected me, he said, in front of other people. And that's when it happened. Through gritted teeth, his friend said, can I sleep on your couch? Because if I don't leave right now, I'm going to kill her. End quote. They actually were separated for a long time because she was scared of him after that night. Uh, being a professor of psychology, things like that intrigue psychologists. So they come up with surveys, right? Well, he came up with a survey, this big old long survey, and he had one question, and the question was this, have you ever thought about killing someone? That's it. That was the whole survey. He gave it to his students in his class. He gathers up the results, and he's going, turning page after page after page. Yes, yes, yes. 80% not only said yes, but they give, gave vivid details about how they would do it. So he expanded his research. He says, okay, maybe this is just an American thing. Too many video games, too many Sly Stallone movies, whatever, right? So he gets in, takes 5,000 people from all over the world. He hits every different culture, every ethnic group, and takes a sample. Asks one question, have you ever thought about killing someone? 91% of the men, 84% of the women said yes. Do you know what this means? I want you to look down your row right now. 
Nine of the ten people you see have considered killing someone. Yeah. So in our passage this morning, Jesus takes us into the darkest places of our hearts to show us the origin, the soil of murder. And he does so because ultimately he wants to heal us. But it's not a one-time healing. It's an ongoing healing so that you can live a healing life. A life where you can be and do something different. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. This is a reading from Matthew chapter uh, 5, verses 17 through 30. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to hell, uh, to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift, at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So God, we ask that you would shine on the page by the power of your spirit. Would you give clarity to the mind? Uh, realness to the heart, would you give and grant the wonders and the realities of this passage, and we ask this in your name, amen. 
Okay, y'all, we need to get to the Sermon on the Mount. You need a map. So I want you to, here are some coordinates. I'm going to give you three. The first one is this. Um, who are the people gathering to Jesus? Who are these people that are hearing him? Who are being gathered on this mountain to listen to this history epic sermon from God himself in the flesh? Who are these people that are attracted to Jesus? Who are these people that that want to be around Jesus, that get Jesus, that understand him and experience him and actually understand and experience blessings like the eight that we've just seen in the earlier Beatitudes, like his grace and his healing that actually were healed and received and experienced the kingdom. Who are these people? Well, the answer is found in Matthew 4, 23 through 25. Remember, these are the shattered people. These are the broken and bruised people. These are the people that are unblessed. These are messed up people, poor in spirit people, people that realize grace only runs downhill, people that are so rich, they're rich in one thing, and that's need. That's who these people are. Impoverished people get Jesus. This means if we don't see ourselves as impoverished, if we don't experience deep in our bones that we are impoverished people, this means Jesus won't make any sense to us. He might make sense to you as as an example, a great moral example and a great moral person or a spiritual leader or a wonder worker or even a riddle to skepticism. But he won't be a savior to you. He might be right doctrine to you, but he won't be the the Savior to you. Second map coordinate. Impoverished people, which we're not going to look at this passage, we skipped it, are salt and light in the world. Do you see that? Verses 15 or 13 through 16. They're salt and light just because they are. This is what God has done. Because grace changes everything. God declares something and makes something, and it is. And these folks that are impoverished are salt and light. And that means that the most powerful realities that are released into this world are released through impoverished people. Salt and light make a difference in the world, but they make a difference because it's coming from mourning people, merciful people, people that are peacemakers, people that are pure in heart, people that uh, are self-forgetful, meek. Impoverished people are the only people that change the world according to Jesus, genuinely change the world, genuinely heal the world. This means you can be a very rich person and be a impoverished person too. Please hear me. You can be an accomplishing go-getter and do lots of great things and be an impoverished person too. This is not this is not just a specific group of people in society. Impoverished people is the factor, the denominator. Third, how do you become these kind of people? How do you become kind of people that get Jesus? How do you become salt and light in your marriage and in your family and in your church and in your community? in institutions, your workplace, in Waco. How do we become those kind of people? The answer is the rest of the sermon. The answer is 517 to end of chapter 7. This is the body of Jesus' sermon. 
And Jesus violates every homiletical instructor and every homiletical class I ever took. He has at least, I counted, 16 points in the sermon. 16. Right? So in the beginning, he gives you the big idea. And now the rest of the sermon, he's fleshing it out and giving you all kinds of main ideas. So we're going to look at the sermon, but we're only going to look at two because that's all I can do. And that's all you can do. That's all you can sit for us to right now. Uh, I want you to look at verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Everyone insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. <sighs> Anger. Anger can make you an impoverished person. Anger. Anger can make you an impoverished person. There's bad news to that, and there's good news to that. Being angry here is carried anger. It's anger that you carry around with you. It's continued anger. It's being angry. It's nursing anger. Anger is not that this angry here is not the first flash of the emotion of anger. It's not isolating some single moment in the moment of anger. If Luther would say, he says, this is the angry bird that doesn't fly over your head. This is the angry bird that makes a nest in your hair and bites off your nose. And that's how he says it. <laughs> angry or anger here is a portable anger. We carry it around in our hearts. Anger is a big deal. Anger is a big deal because it diminishes people. Anger is a big deal because it, it murders people. It takes our life. In verse 21 and 22, Jesus is saying, look, you've heard from of old, you shall not murder. I'm going to tell you, if you carry angry anger in your heart, you're murdering them in your heart. Anger in the heart is the origin. It's the soil that murder grows out of. There's not one murder that's ever been committed that didn't come out of the soil of anger. Every murder started with anger. There's no murder apart from the soil of anger. Anger diminishes. Anger tries to make someone non-existent. So I want you to look at verse 22. To insult someone or to raka someone, if you're going to use the Hebrew, to raka, to insult. That means to diminish someone's competence. It means to diminish something about their abilities, something maybe it's their moral or intellectual abilities or their physical or or their work abilities, or it's in a, their ability to handle a situation. It's things like saying, you stu it, literally, if you go to translations that want to make this in the vernacular, they'll say stuff like, you stupid, you're such an idiot. It's that kind of language. Uh, and what that does, it's like you're saying you're stupid or you're an idiot. You say that to someone and they have three degrees. It's like, you're such a horrible mother, and she has six kids. What a horrible accountant. He's an accountant. You stink at communicating. And they stand in front of people all day and teach. And what happens is, is that when we insult 
or trying to make someone unworthy of being kind to and unworthy of respect or taking their life. If you go to the next one in verse 22, you fool. This is, this is going beyond the competencies. It's going beyond the external gifts and talents and abilities that are good works. And it's now attacking the very person. You're diminishing their very self. You're breaking them down. We tear at the roots and the core of who they are, and we want to make them a non-person, non-existent, a nothing. You're a fool. So much so that the person has not just done something foolish, they now are foolish. They just didn't do something that's worth being rejected. They are rejection. It's diminishing the person to such a degree that there's nothing left in them to love and accept. It's taking their life. This is why anger is so powerful. This is why it's so destructive. Some of you have been abused. You've been abused verbally, emotionally, physically. I want to say to you, you've been diminished. So, of course, you're going to have feelings and thoughts of being unworthy and full of shame and feeling like a nothing, a non-person. So please hear me. Yes, human words shape us but God's words shape us more. Human words have power. God's words have more power. All right, let's look at verses 27 and 28, leaving that light topic of anger and going into a, just a real superficial one called lust. You have heard that it is said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Lust can make you an impoverished person. Anger can make you an impoverished person. Lust can make you an impoverished person. There's bad news to that, and there's good news to that. Lust here is carried lust. It's lust that we carry around with us. It's, it's continued lust. It's being lustful. It's nursing lust. This is not noticing attraction. In fact, Matthew scholar Frederick Bruner says, there's a difference between noticing attractive person and lusting. One happens noticing. The other is allowed to happen, lust. Lust is like anger. Both of them seek to have power and control over someone. Anger does it by hatred. Lust does it by desire. It's Trying to possess someone, control them. Lust is a portable lust. We carry it around in our hearts with us. Lust is a big deal because it diminishes people. Lust is a big deal because it attacks and diminishes the most uh, intimate human relationship that God has created, marriage. 
That's why in verse 27 and 28, Jesus connects lust to adultery. Both tear at the very fabric of marriage. Both tear at the very core of human intimacy. Both tear at the very foundations of love. In other words, it's so ironic is that we think in lust we're actually finding love, but you're actually tearing it apart. We tear it down. Lust includes singles. It includes singles being single because you are potentially someone's spouse. And the other person is potentially someone's spouse. Many of us will read this and we look at Jesus' take on lust and we think, yep, that's a man issue. Wives are nudging their husbands or whoever, whatever male sitting next to them, right? Maybe. Uh, the general template goes like this. Uh, men have been designed with a higher potency of sight pleasure, and women have been designed with a higher potency of relational pleasure. So men struggle with sight pleasure, pornography. Women struggle with romantic fantasies and Harlequin romance kind of stuff, whatever that goes with it, relational pleasure. That's the general template. I'm here to tell you that if you go on college campuses today, you will, I can tell you now, and those that work with college students know that the trends are radically changing. The statistics are going out the window. Pornography among women is exponentially booming. So I guess that means... Men are exponentially booming and reading Harlequin romances, I guess. <laughs> or watching chick flicks. I have no idea. I don't, I can't, I'm not going to even try an application there. We're just going to move on. All right. Um, also, lust includes this. It includes the desire to be seen. The desire to be attractive. The desire to be lusted after by someone else who's not your spouse. I think a lot of clothing realities circle around that issue. It's also the desire to be desired. You want to be appreciated. You want to be noticed. You want to be wanted. You want to be attractable. You want to be seen as beautiful by someone who's not your spouse, single or not. I think a lot of inappropriate flirting happens in that way. I'm so glad I came across this quote. It's from an ancient church father. So we're going back to, you know, 200s, right? A guy named Chrysostom, and he wanted to make sure that no one thought the Bible had a low view of sex, of sexual pleasure, of sexual intimacy, of the gift of sex. He wanted to make sure no one got the idea that the Bible had a low view, that the Bible actually had the highest view, that the Bible saw, in fact, sex is so erotic and so stimulating and so pleasurable and so loaded with the highest potency of intimacy and pleasure and healing and redemption and relating. So much so that he put it in marriage so much so that he went on to say this. If you desire, I love this. Listen to the topic with this kind of language. If thou desirest to look and find pleasure, look at thine own wife and love her continually. 
That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. That's the Bible's talking about. The Bible's not prudish. The Bible says it is so awesome. It's so incredible. It's for marriage. <laughs> so have at it in marriage. And kids, you need to hear that. Sex is awesome, and it's for marriage. All right, so how can anger and lust make us impoverished people? How can it do that? All right, Camus, The Plague. Some of you all have read that. Apparently, the, uh, the only hero-like figure in there is a guy named Taru, and at the end of the book, he says this. Each of us has the plague within him. No one, no one on earth is free from it. And I know, too, that we must keep endless watch on ourselves, lest in our careless moment we breathe in somebody's face and fasten the infection on him. Every single one of us have the plague within us. And Jesus comes as a legalist in this passage to take the law, specifically the commands of, against anger and lust, and he wants to show you your plague. He wants you to feel the plague. He wants to make you an impoverished person who needs him. This is why he says, do not think that I come to abolish the law, verse 17. This is why he says in 19, therefore, anyone who relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to be the same will be called least, not great. This is why he says in verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, in other words, that your righteousness is not just a behavioral righteousness, that your righteousness is a heart righteousness, which means that your heart has no, no adultery and lust in it and no anger and murder in it. How do you get that kind of righteousness? But you have to. Because if you don't have it, he says, you don't see the kingdom of heaven. No one, no one sees the kingdom of heaven without a surpassing, exceeding righteousness. So Jesus becomes the legalist. And by becoming the legalist, he shows us the plague within us. And he wants to bring us to our knees so we give up. He wants to bring us to our knees so that we see who we are and what we're like. He wants to bring us to our knees so that the gates of grace can open for us. So that we actually, for the first time or for the millionth time, functionally experience a hunger and thirst for an exceeding, surpassing righteousness that's not our own. This is what Jesus means when he says, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Jesus is saying, I fulfill the law for law-breaking people. I become a murderer. I become an adulterer. 
I carry murder around and I carry lust around and I will be liable to judgment. Jesus becomes the plague on the cross and becomes liable to the council and becomes liable, as this text says, to the hell of fire in your place for you. Jesus fulfills the law for impoverished people, which means that he loves and accepts people. And he loved and accepted people, even his enemies. And he loved and accepted people, no matter what the situation he never had within his thoughts and his feelings and his heart. He never had unloving, unkind love for another person. He never carried anger around in his heart for you. Because you do and I do. He never carried lust around in his heart. This is an exceeding righteousness. This is a, a righteousness above behavioral righteousness. So we could be judged as righteous forever and ever. So impoverished people are the only kind of people who can actually begin to make any attempts to not be angry people and lustful people. Please hear that. This, to me, is one of the most shocking things, I think, in in everything he's saying. He's saying, the only people that actually can begin to struggle and see growth and change in being angry and lustful is an impoverished person. When you say, I'm a murderer, you stop becoming one. When you say, I carry lust around, you begin to not carry it around. Honest admission opens the gates to grace. Honest admission melts the ice of sin. And so what ends up happening is grace starts changing everything and love actually flows. And so you become quick. You become quick at being a reconciler, a peacemaker. That's what's going on in 23 and 24. Did you see this? First, he talks about the law and how incredible it is. And then he offers these things. So, so if you're in church and you realize that someone has something against you, you go and you reconcile with them, he says. And you're like, where did that come from? Where that came from is that the law actually produced an impoverished person. The impoverished person actually admits that they're impoverished. The impoverished person says, yes, I am an angry person. I am a murderer, and you stop becoming one. And now the ice melts, grace moves in, and you actually now become quick to reconcile with people. So if you're offering a gift at the altar, there you remember your brother or something against you. Leave your gift before the altar and first be reconciled to your brother. 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser. So this is folks that someone realizes, this person has something against me. And seeks to be a peacemaker because grace changes everything. So if he knows that he has offended somebody or she has offended somebody, obviously that person will go and talk to that person as well. The harder thing is, that person's upset with me. And the, the call there is to go be reconciled. This means in the area of lust that you take decisive action against lust. In other words, you move towards being pure in heart. That's why you have these weird things like if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw away. There are folks in the early church, folks in the medieval church that took that literally. 
But then they realized they were still lusting. Because the plague is within. And Jesus is obviously talking metaphorically, but here's what happens when grace changes us and we begin to admit we are in these areas, we, the ice melts in these areas and you start taking decisive action in these areas. You do things like maybe this might mean cutting off a relationship or the things you watch, the websites you go to, just poof, cutting it off. There's no, notice, there's no, uh, well, you know, let's, you know, how far can you go? It's like, cut it off. Throw it away. It might mean that, that husbands and wives need to recourt each other in creative ways and pursue each other in new directions and actions. It might mean frequency of sexual intimacy needs to be talked about. And it also might mean that you need to get married already. Some of you are taking way too long. Way too long. You're looking for something, the perfect whatever. Here's the deal. Do you love each other? Are you Christians? Get married. So if you come to me for premarital counseling or wedding advice or boyfriend-girlfriend advice, that's what you're going to get from me. <laughs> right? Unless, of course, you're my daughter. <laughs> it's just not happening. When you're 40 or 50, I'll think about it. All right. Impoverished people get Jesus, right? Impoverished people get him. Impoverished people experience his grace. Impoverished people experience his blessing. Impoverished people experience his salvation. So Jesus is fully committed to being the legalist that makes you impoverished. Amen.